to be with you this morning. Uh, I've been reminded a couple times already of how much perspective matters. Uh, You come here this morning and think the pews are a little empty. That's a little less full than I'm used to. There's a fewer people that I uh, am used to seeing. Uh, For me, this is a size uh, of gathering about 10 to 20 times larger than I'm used to. (laughs) Uh, I gather in a house church uh, with about four other families every week, and the children, I think, outnumber officially the adults now. Uh, So we're a whole bunch of young families that get together, and it is chaotic and crazy. Uh, I was reminded this morning as well of one of the things I learned pretty early on that they couldn't have possibly taught me in the classroom as I was studying to be a minister. Um, I was in Saskatoon. I had planned out, uh, I was working as a youth minister for about eight months doing an internship trying to figure out what this thing is called ministry. And I planned uh, a series of events one evening and was expecting, you know, 15, 20, 30 youth to show up. And there were like three. (laughs) I was like, man, what do you do with that? Like, how do I take this? Anyway, I was reminded in that moment to be faithful, even with the few. And so this morning, if you're feeling few, Uh, I just want to remind you that God is faithful even with the few. Um, And so you, the few this morning, God is faithful with. Uh, May he be faithful this morning also um, through my words, through our prayers, uh, and as we go from here. Um, I'm really fascinated by ads. I'm really fascinated by uh, TV ads because these are people who study uh, people (laughs) relentlessly. They want to figure out what makes you tick what buttons to push in you to get you to buy their product. And so I've seen some fairly amusing ad campaigns uh, over the course of my life, uh, and you've probably seen many more than I have. Um, one of my favorite was a Mountain Dew, series of Mountain Dew uh, ads. I don't know if it was early 2000s, late 90s. Uh, maybe they still run on occasion. Uh, there's these two guys, and they're on a mountain. Um, and, and the one guy sees this billy goat, and there's like a Mountain Dew can between them. And all of a sudden, it's like, it's on. And so this guy, like, puts his head down and charges the goat. And the goat charges him, and they clash, Um, which you'd think the human would perish. However, this is ads, not reality. And so he kind of, like, stumbles back a little bit, and they clash again. And finally, the animal walks away. And the guy stands there, and he's got his Mountain Dew, and he's drinking it. And and his friend asks, how are you feeling? He says, not bad. I thought it was hilarious. It's a great ad campaign. If you want to guarantee somebody is not going to buy your product, however, put something like this as your business slogan. Come, give us your life. Come and die. You're going to get very few calls. You get very few people knocking on the door. I suppose maybe a military campaign might, might possibly uh, be akin to that. I've seen several for the uh, Canadian Reserves or for the Canadian military recently. And it's this grand call. It has fantastic music in the background. The enticement of working with this incredible uh, technology that they've developed to wage war. But what I find interesting is that though they're calling you to die, they're calling you to die for what? Well, for your country. And I want to ask this morning, is that a vision that's big enough for our lives? Is country a big enough vision to give your life for? If the military was really up front and they actually put, come give your life for your country, is that a vision big enough that you would lay down your life for? I don't know that it's big enough for me. It's pretty big. It's pretty compelling. 
millions of lives at stake, freedom, things that we cherish. But I want to ask, is that compelling enough? I don't know that it is. The story of Jesus, however, I find compelling because it's a vision that transcends national boundaries. It's a vision that transcends war. It's a vision that transcends race and gender and social class. The vision of Jesus, in my opinion, is compelling. It is a cosmic vision. It is a reconciling of all things from one end of the universe that we can't even see yet to the other end that we can't even see yet. Reconciling all these things to God in Jesus. That's a pretty big vision. That, I think, is worth giving your life for. As I was talking with Kelly earlier this week, uh, he kind of set up this scenario. He said, you know, Mike, we're kind of in the middle of uh, talking about or, or trying to tackle this question. Somebody who's a non-Christian comes to you and says, hey, Mike, um, bring it on. Give me the best possible reason you can uh, to, to, consi- uh, to compel me to consider Christianity. What's the best possible reason? Well, I don't know if this is the best possible reason, but I think it's a compelling reason. And that's that Jesus is a vision big enough for our lives. That it's a story big enough to live into and it runs totally against uh, a good chunk of the message that we hear from TV and the newspaper and our school systems. I think the vision of Jesus is compelling enough to give our lives for. In the midst of a fragmented, a fast-paced, a very frenetic life, I think that Jesus offers us a center that actually brings all these pieces back together. I think he gives us a vision that's big enough and I think he gives us a center that draws us together and enables us to actually say yes and to say no from that same center. I'm absolutely convinced that a life with Jesus at the center is the only one with a vision that's big enough, a story compelling enough to sort through and make sense of all the fragmented pieces of our lives. I just want to invite you to uh, pray with me for a moment and then we'll uh, dive into Matthew. God, I thank you for this opportunity. I'm, I'm humbled uh, to stand here, to claim to speak uh, your words. I pray, Father, that um, you would give us a discerning spirit this morning, all of us, to, uh, to sort out your words uh, from my words. But I pray more than that, Father, that you would give us your spirit to live into the vision that you've called us to, one that is so much bigger than who we are, Uh, one that needs you to help us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I'm going to take a look at Matthew 16 this morning. Uh, So if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and so I'm sorry this isn't going to match up with what's in the Pew Bibles. It may not match up exactly with what's in your hand, but uh, hopefully you can kind of listen to what I read and and read along yourself and uh, put the two pieces together. This is Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Picking up in verse 21. Matthew 16 and verse 21. Uh, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, 
Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are, not seeing, or you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's lots of different centers that we could have for our life. There's lots of different things that we can orient our lives around and, uh, and we have to choose. And today, uh, I really want to lay very clearly before you that Jesus uh, is the best choice. And I think that's why uh, the world needs to consider Jesus seriously, needs to consider Christianity seriously. Uh, Let me read this story to you and and see if uh, it kind of connects with you a little bit. At 12 appearances, and by all standards, the Johnsons have a wonderful life. They own a house in a nice suburb with four bedrooms, two baths, and a rear-entry two-car garage. Their house is surrounded by a six-foot picket fence to provide privacy for an in-ground pool, barbecue grill, and patio furniture. Bob and Karen, they have two kids, a boy and a girl. Each of them, Bob and Karen, uh, have a college degree. They both work and have a combined household income well above the average for their community. Most important, everyone in the family is in good health. That's kind of an overview of their life. And now listen to some of the details. Eight years ago, uh, Bob took a job at an office located in a growing suburb. Although this took them further from their families, both Bob and Karen had agreed that it would still be feasible to fly home on an occasion because they were making more money. And the airport was in close proximity to their house. Bob and Karen, typical day, would look like this. They'd get up at 6.30. Bob would rush to leave the house by 7 o'clock to beat rush hour traffic, which would let him get to work in 35 minutes instead of 55 minutes. Um, We don't know much about that, do we? He opens the door uh, leading into the garage. He hits the garage door opener. He gets into his car, pulls out the driveway. He spots his new neighbor taking out the trash and waves to him with a forced smile on his face. As Bob drives down the street, he reminds himself that his new neighbor has now been in the neighborhood for two years and he still can't remember his name. That thought lasts for about five seconds and then Bob flips on the radio, catch up with the news of the day and goes on his way. Uh, Karen, meanwhile, back home, has worked out an arrangement so she can go to work a little bit later so she can drop off the kids at school. So she's going to get to work by about 9 o'clock. She can get the kids out the door by 7.55, get them to school by 8.15. With the same ritual precision, Karen makes her way out to the car, starts heading out of the driveway. When one of her kids announces, he's left his lunch inside. And so mom puts the car in reverse, goes back to the garage, goes back inside, grabs the lunch, hits the alarm that she forgot to arm the first time she was leaving the house, gets back in the car and gets on her way. Bob and Karen spend an average day at work, nine and a half hours, give or take, at the office, completing only four and a half hours of productive work. Uh, Both will bring home bulging briefcases in hopes that after the kids are asleep and in bed, they'll maybe sneak in a couple more minutes or hours of work. 
At 3.30, the children go to their after-school program and they wait for mom and dad to come show up. It's now 5 o'clock. Bob has to leave the office if he's going to go pick up the kids in time, uh, but he doesn't actually get out of the office till 5.20. Bob and the kids pull into their rear-entry garage at 6.15. Bob turns off the security system, making sure nobody's tampered with the home while they've been away. Karen gets there about 6.30. First order of business is supper, get the kids fed, get the adults fed, make sure everybody's happy again. Uh, And then the kids go watch TV while parents do some housework. Kids finally get into bed sometime around 9, a little bit later than usual, but that's actually more usual than unusual. Mom and dad, exhausted, flop down in front of the TV for a bit, look at their briefcases, decide to leave it to the side for another day. 11.30 or so, they decide it's finally time to go to bed, hit reset do it all over again the next day. That sound familiar to any of you? Uh, I don't know about the unproductive work part, but uh, the rest of it, the rest of it really resonates with me. <laughs> we live in a really fractured, frenetic kind of life. We have kids going six different directions on the same night with two adults and two vehicles. <laughs> it's craziness. We put in longer hours and invest more energy for less return. And it makes me wonder what center we're living out of. If you listen closely to the Johnsons' story, and if I could keep telling you their story, we'd unearth that they're not actually really happy with this lifestyle. They're quite literally on that little wheel that the hamster's on, and they're running in circles and circles and circles, and they're getting nowhere. And inside, they're slowly dying. They're slowly dying. It looks like they have it all, but they don't. It's an uncentered life. It's a life that says yes to everything and no to nothing. Uh, it's a life that has no, no ability uh, to deny something that might be good, uh, but is unnecessary, that might actually pile on top of an already overburdened schedule, might actually suck a little more life out of you than you have left to give. Uh, a couple years ago, I'm trying to think about when it was... Um, there was a movie came out called Yes Man. Uh, Jim Carrey, uh, if you didn't see it, it's hilarious. And if my memory serves me right, which it doesn't always when it comes to movies, it was a pretty clean movie. Uh, and so check it out before you watch it with young kids. Here's the basic premise of the movie. Guy's stuck in a uh, dead-end job. He's working at a bank. Basically no room for advancement, uh, nowhere to go. It's, it's a doldrum kind of life. He kind of goes to the office, and then he goes home, and he sits down, and he, he does nothing. And then he goes to the office, and he works, and then he goes home, and he sits down, and he does nothing. He's got no kind of nightlife. He's got no friends. He turns friends away. And so uh, another friend who he knew from a former life uh, comes whizzing back into his life and tells him he has to go to this seminar. Uh, and uh, Jim Carrey plays the main character. It's like, ah, I don't know, he's going to play his same old card. No, I'm not going to go. I'm going to just go home and do my own thing. Well, finally, he ends up going to the seminar, and it's a seminar about the power of yes. Uh, and you've got to hear the seminar speaker to, to really get his quirkiness. Anyway, so Jim Carrey decides, I'm going to change my life. And, and here's the basic thrust of the whole show. What would happen if you always said yes to every request that was made of you? Which is funny, because he's a loan officer at the bank. <laughs> Uh, so you can see how this might play out. But the life of Jim Carrey spirals, as you might imagine, completely out of control. Every ad on TV that says, buy this product, yes. <laughs> Every person that asks him to go and do something, yes, I'll go there. Where do you want to fly to? Throw a name out there. Yes, uh, you know. And it spirals completely out of control. 
It's a life that has no center, it has no moorings, it's got no anchor. It's got no way to filter through all the myriads of requests in our world. And I would suggest that probably more of us are living that way than we'd like to admit. It's an uncentered life, it's a chaotic life, and it's a life that drains uh, life out of us. There's another kind of life, though. Uh, It's not just the frenetic living. I think we can be living a a kind of a frustrated life. There's a different kind of center. Uh, You can pick different centers for your life. I mentioned there's lots of different choices. Bob and Karen, if we listen to their story, maybe it's not that they're saying yes to too many things. Uh, Maybe it's actually that they're living out of this center that has sometimes been called the American dream. They're chasing it. Whatever that is, they're chasing it. And they think they've got it and somehow it fails to deliver on its promise, and so it uh, produces some frustration in them. They're dying inside as they go to their jobs, as they run their kids to activities, um, because they're trying to chase something that can't possibly deliver. Uh, You know, we can spot some unhealthy life centers um, pretty easily. Some of them like uh, drugs or alcohol or gambling addictions. We look at them. We've labeled them addictions. Society's labeled them addictions. We recognize that when you say yes to these particular things too much, it's not good for you. It produces an unhealthy kind of life. But I want to suggest there's other centers that are a little more subtle, uh, and I'm going to name two of them this morning uh, that I've seen, and you could certainly add more to the list. Uh, One, I think, is the entertainment center. Uh which ironically most of us probably have in our homes. Uh, But it's the center to our lives uh, that says entertainment is the highest goal. Uh, You don't have to look very far to see how pervasive this is. Uh, Many households, anyway, have uh, hundreds of TV channels. Not only do they have hundreds of TV channels, but they've got multiple TVs to watch these hundreds of TV channels on. We've got iPods to take our music with us. We've got iPod touches to take our video with us. We've got iPhones to stay connected with Facebook so we can see what crazy things uh, who cares out there is doing. Okay? Uh, it's really interesting to me uh, that we're almost unable as a family, this is my family, this gets a little personal, uh, in our van can almost drive nowhere without the kids asking, can we watch TV? Because we were cursed enough to get a really good deal on a van that had one of those flip-down TVs. We're an entertainment culture. We want to be entertained. We want to be distracted. Just take my mind off of whatever this pain is. Take my mind off of this boredom. Get me out of... Viktor Frankl um, is a psychotherapist who is a survivor of a Nazi death camp. Uh, He passed away not long ago. uh, But he wrote a really interesting book called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, for several years of his life, he experienced suffering unimaginable uh, that we don't even witness through TV screens. We can't see in the movies. We can't experience what he's experienced, nor do we want to, really. Uh, but he had some really interesting reflections uh, after having observed some of these really horrific treatments of people, my fellow human beings. Uh, one insight that he offered is that happiness is an endlessly frustrating goal uh, because it can't be manufactured and it can't be found. Uh, Happiness, contrary to popular belief, is not actually something that you can put your hands on. It's not something you can dig up. It's not something you can invest. It's not something you can plant and water and grow. Happiness, Frankel challenges, uh, is actually a byproduct of other activities. It's not the activity itself. It's something else that happens as a result of. And so this pursuit of entertainment, hopefully in the goal of attaining some sort of happiness, becomes this frustrating pursuit when all of a sudden we can't find happiness. We don't really know how to define it. We don't know how to, how to kind of 
figure out what it is exactly. We can't, it's like trying to catch the wind. And so, again, we're found in this kind of promise of entertainment. If you get a bigger TV screen, uh, your, whole, your whole life will just be changed, man. If you just watch this movie, if you just buy this gadget, oh, let me tell you. Well, let me tell you what. We never stop to ask that question. Not very often. I want to stop and ask that question this morning. That was an interesting insight that, that caught me. Another interesting insight pertaining a little more directly to entertainment that Frankel offered. He came and visited the USA, I think it was in the 70s, maybe the 80s. Uh, read his book if you want to find out exactly. Um, and he w- noted the fact that there were a lot more suicides among the teens than uh, years past. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, so did he. And so he theorized that here's what had happened. That we'd actually created a culture where we had enough free time and enough money uh, that entertainment became the highest goal. No longer did we have farms, for example, where everybody has to pitch in or the farm doesn't make it. And so teens were given leeway. Just go play. Go amuse yourself. Go entertain yourself. And they had the means to do it. And it wasn't a compelling enough story for them. This center of entertainment wasn't enough to be worth living for. And so many of them took their life in his study. I find that interesting, amusing ourselves to the point of death. Uh, One other center that I think is very pervasive, that is a big challenge to us, is individualism. Um, And here's why. Individualism is something that we can't actually do. It's held up as this ideal that if you can pick yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, if you can become independent, If you get the right job and enough money, you can be totally independent of everybody. But the funny thing is, is the people who really achieve that still drive cars that they didn't make on roads that they didn't build and get food from land that they didn't till. And so to be an individual is actually an impossible concept. In fact, think about it. How do you define I without a you? How can I be me if there's not also a you against which to say, I'm, I'm not you, I'm I, I'm me, and you are you. And yet our culture pushes this. Look out for number one, because nobody else is going to look out for you. It's scary. iPods and MySpace and university or burgers that are done my way are at their very core playing on a very cruel farce that is this individualism. Uh, We are raised in a community without which we don't survive. Moreover, if we can believe the studies that are done in human development, those who don't receive relationship at pretty critical junctures in their life actually grow up to be uh, deformed adults. If they don't receive the touch and the caring and the speaking and the being responded to early enough in their life. In fact, you grow up to be an adult that's somehow deformed and not, not fully human. Individualism is a farce. It's the irony, this story, the center out of which we live, just live just for you, uh, played out in movies like Click, (laughs) starring Adam Sandler, uh, where he gets a remote control to control the world around him, one of which he has a fast-forward button. And he finds himself at the end of his life, sorry, this is a spoiler alert, by the way, still worth watching the movie, but uh, spoiler alert, finds himself at the end of his life in this typical scene that we've probably seen played out in lots of different ways, sitting as a very old man at his desk, putting in just a few more minutes while another family member is graduating 
putting in just a few more minutes while he misses family time, when he misses relationship. All the money in the world, all the stuff in the world, but no relationships. It's the irony of these kind of movies where we recognize it at the end of the life. Money isn't the most important thing and stuff isn't the most important thing and yet these are the things that we chase more often than not. Makes me wonder when we're going to actually listen to those who are stepping through death's doors and stop chasing after those things that we can't actually take with us beyond the grave. Uh, These centers, individualism, entertainment, uh, you go ahead and add some others. Uh, They promise what they can't deliver. Entertainment promises happiness, promotes itself as the highest goal of living, and yet falls short on both accounts. Individualism promises fulfillment if you just work hard enough and long enough, but frustrates us because we are relational beings. And so I want to propose that Jesus, in fact, gives us a center out of which to live, that gives us a fulfilled life. This is not to be confused with a happy life. This is not to be confused with a comfortable life. Don't hear me saying that, uh, because I'm not. But Jesus, I think, provides a fulfilling life, a compelling life for us to follow. Uh, So perhaps finding the right center for our life has less to do with asking the question, you know, what's the right center, but has more to do with asking, who do I trust with my life? Maybe it's a question of trust. Fundamentally, I think the issue is, who am I going to serve? Who am I going to serve? Let's take one more look at Matthew 16. Um, I'm not going to read the whole passage again, but I'll remind you very briefly what has happened. This is a turning point in Matthew. Uh, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly. There's two times when this phrase is used. From then on, Jesus began to. Once way back in chapter 4, and once now. It's a major turning point in Matthew's story. Jesus begins to tell his disciples plainly that he's going to die. He finally lays out for them, here's where I'm going. You've been following me for so long, now you've got to know the destination. And so he lays it out before them. Peter can't hack it. (laughs) Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. Death is not in your cards. I've seen you heal. I've seen you multiply bread. There's no reason for death to be in the picture of your future. Not going to happen on my watch. And Jesus tells him, actually, you've got, you've got the wrong perspective here. You're thinking from a human point of view, not God's point of view. This is where we've been. So Peter reacts to Jesus from his center. I won't let that happen. I wonder, perhaps, if Peter is motivated politically. Maybe Peter's thinking, Jesus, you're the Messiah. I'm firmly convinced you're the Messiah, but you're not playing the Messiah part right now. The Messiah is supposed to wage war, supposed to free Israel from the Roman captors, supposed to give us wealth, supposed to give us land, supposed to give us control. Death isn't in the picture of Messiah. Maybe, Maybe Peter is reacting just from a personal level. Jesus, I like you. I don't want you to die. Either way, Jesus says, Peter, you've got the wrong center. It's not God's center. And so he drops the bombshell. He says, Peter, I'm walking this way because if you want to hold on to your life greedily, you're going to lose it. It's going to be like wet soap. Slip out of your fingers. Like trying to catch water, catch wind. You're not going to be able to do it. You can't hold on to your life, Peter. It doesn't matter what you do. And Peter, if you really want to hold on to your life, if you really want to keep your life, you actually have to give it up. 
You have to lose your life for my sake if you want to follow me. And that's a painful message. That is a bombshell. And I don't think Jesus is talking in metaphorical language just to say, by the way, really big commitment. This is going to be a big commitment. Jesus is literally going to the cross. Jesus is not saying, you have to give your life and I'm going to kind of not really walk the whole way that I just laid out for you. No, he's going to go to the cross and he is really going to die. Jesus' center is a complete and total trust in God. That God will be faithful as Jesus does his will. Okay, so let's back up for a second. Why in the world is this a compelling story? Well, I just want to submit to you, who in the world is audacious enough, is bold enough, has the chutzpah, not to ask politely, but demand your whole life? Not your weekends, not your Sunday mornings, not when you have a coffee break, your whole entire life. From the minute you took your first breath to the second you take your last. Who makes that kind of request and expects a hearing? Well, Jesus. And paradoxically, in the middle of saying, by the way, you need to give your whole life, says, but in giving your life, you're going to find it. Who does that? (laughs) And even more, if you want to cling to your life, it's not going to work. In my experience, Jesus is the only one bold enough to make this claim and the only one who's able to back it up. He's the only one who has a 2,000-year history, testimony of people saying, and he conquered death. He was resurrected. He said, walk this way. He walked this way. And he's still alive. There's one person in the history of humanity that I'm aware of that makes that claim and backs it up. Jesus invites us to see the world from God's point of view. Don't just look at it from a human point of view where you would say, if I don't hold on to this, then I'm going to lose it. Jesus says, look at it from God's point of view. It's a world in which death, in fact, leads to life. It's a world in which selflessness triumphs over selfishness. Where selflessness is in your best interest, in fact. In which the last are going to be first. Jesus has a whole host of these backward sayings. It's a world that has one caring, sovereign Lord who provides enough for everyone. It's not a world that has six and a half billion little lords hoarding their little turf. It's a world where reconciled relationships are the norm, they're not the exception, where where people are more concerned for the well-being of other people than looking out for number one because they trust that the one caring Lord has provided enough. I think it has to do with trust. What's your center? Having but one master means you have the ability to say no. The next time somebody from the PTA says, hey, really want you to come, you got just such great gifts to, you actually have a chance to step back and say, wait a minute, I'm not beholden to your system. I'm not beholden to your gods. I'm not beholden to your master. Let me step back and pray for a minute. It gives us a chance at the same time to say yes to things that on the outside might look as though they're worthless investments. Like who in the world would give up a profitable career as a professor, as a sought-after, world-renowned speaker to go live in a home with handicapped folks who at best are vegetables and at worst a burden? Well, there's one guy who felt the call of Jesus on his life. He gave it all up. 
And he went and lived, and in the middle of that, he found Jesus. <laughs> I'd love to tell you a little more about Henry now and if we can have coffee someday. It's a fascinating countercultural move where he says yes to something that the world says, why? No. And yet in the middle of that death, if you will, he finds life. So uh, let me just conclude with a couple suggestions. Um, I'd suggest, and this is going to be no no huge revelation, that you let your expectations of life be dictated by Jesus. By Jesus' values. So much more than by your job title or your social status or your cumulative net worth. All those things make demands on our lives. I'm, I'm a father. I'm a preacher. I am a pilot. I am a martial artist. I am a musician. I am a... We can't talk about my net worth yet because I'm not there. <laughs> I've got a whole host of titles that make demands on my life. But it's important that Jesus is the first, foremost, and maybe only, the one around which all those other titles orbit. And some of them maybe even fall away. Follower of Jesus, which means first and foremost that I've taken up my cross, that I've laid down my life in trust that I will find it. Many of the things that we put our hope with aren't really within our control. The economic downturn has demonstrated that in an uh, unequivocal way. Um, thousands of people who thought, uh, millions of people in fact, that thought banks were indestructible, that thought the global economy was indestructible, that it was always going to be progress and up and up and nothing else, saw that come crashing to a close. Uh, BP has proven to us how fragile even local economies can be. A whole fishing and seafood industry has been wiped out. As a matter of fact, by order of the president for a time, maybe it's still in effect, I haven't checked up on this, but there's a whole host of people in the oil industry who lost their jobs or out of work. And so these things that we've come to hope in, that we've put our trust in, get knocked out from under us and our whole lives fall apart. All of this is beyond one human being. If we're putting our eggs in the retirement basket, that if we work long enough and hard enough to achieve freedom, I, I really think we're looking for the wrong place for security. Uh, you might have some measure of influence on your job performance. You might have some measure of influence on promotions, but you've got no control over your industry. You may have some measure of control over getting to and from work, but you've got no control over other motorists on the road who may wipe you out. It's a sad thing, but it's a fact that our life is fragile. You have no control over a lot of it, in spite of the illusions to the contrary. You may have some measure of control over your health by exercising, by having good diet, but you're going to die someday. And that retirement that you worked so hard for is going to be left behind, potentially as the writer of Ecclesiastes writes, to a child who will squander it away. <laughs> we desperately need a more solid and lasting center to root our lives in to root our living and our dying in, to root our working and our playing in, and that center is Jesus. It's not, it's not a simplistic busyness is bad and laziness is good, or busyness is, is bad. And I, I'm not trying to make a simplistic comparison here. It's, it's difficult. It's not simple, but I think it's necessary. Jesus had busy days, in fact, uh, when he was up before dawn and, and up long after dark, healing people, teaching people, being with people, answering their demands. He lived frenetic days like we do from time to time. But there was a center that compelled him on, that drew him on. 
Jesus also had days of silence and solitude and withdrawal. In fact, he had 40 of them on the front end of his ministry. So this isn't an either-or kind of thing. It's more complex than that. And so again, I think it comes down to trust. Who do you trust? Jesus trusted God, sought to do the will of God, and calls us to do the same. Uh, I would say, very practically speaking, in, in our world, here's three things we can do. One is we can invest in fewer relationships more deeply. We can make fewer but deeper commitments. Uh, for me, this has a, a, a big component that has to do with witness and evangelism and sharing the good news. I don't think it could happen door to door. I don't think life change happens that way. It didn't happen that way for me. But if we're actually going to share the good news, if people are, then we have to let people into our life and let them see where the good news is making a difference. We have to get into their life so we can hear them and figure out where is, is Jesus' good news for you? Because on the front end, if all we have is a sale pitch, come and die, you know what kind of response we're going to get. But if you can get into the middle and say, you know, it sounds really bonkers, but just come walk with me for a little while. I think if we invest in fewer relationships, but more deeply, we'll have a much greater impact for Jesus. Uh, Secondly, I would say let's pray before we make time and financial commitments. So before you go buy a motorhome, or before you you go buy a TV, before you sign your kids up for soccer or hockey, before you sign yourself up for those, pray. Let's just create space. 30 seconds, 5 minutes a week. Create space to pray. Let Jesus really become your center. He did this all the time. (laughs) Jesus, before he picks his disciples, up on the mountain all night praying. And he still missed one. (laughs) Judas, sorry, bad joke. Um, Let's pray. Let's pause. There's nothing in this world, when we have eternity in view, when we have eternity in view, that we can't take five minutes to pray for. If nothing else, it forces your brain to shift from business-minded, how am I going to spend my money, how am I going to manage this mode, into God's realm, whatever that looks like in the moment. Uh, Last thing I would suggest is that we need to disconnect once in a while. I think a major problem, major problem in Calgary, and I'm in the middle of it uh, in a big way, is is frenetic living, is going from sunup to sundown, and then a little longer, because now we have these wonderful things called light bulbs, Uh, It's not even the sun that dictates our day and our work schedule. Disconnect. That means turn off the BlackBerry. Put to the side the iPhone. As a matter of fact, if you can't do that, I know a really great campground 45 minutes from here where you can't get cell reception. It struck me as odd as I came back into the city and turned my phone back on. I was like, what? Nobody emailed me? I was gone for two days. (laughs) See how addicted we are? couldn't even disconnect i think we need to disconnect if we are going to center our life on jesus being alone doesn't mean loneliness being being in solitude with god uh, getting recentered, refocusing getting a breath of fresh air uh, a new perspective pick all these different metaphors if you want um if nothing else it lets us see that when we're not juggling our little pieces of the world the world still keeps going we're not quite as important as we think we are So I think we need to disconnect. And I think Jesus needs to be the center of that time of disconnection. So let's invest in fewer relationships, but let's invest more deeply 
That doesn't mean we're not open to new relationships, but let's, let's consider them prayerfully. Let's consider that a time and financial commitment. Let's pray and let's disconnect once in a while. One of the reasons I think a life centered in Jesus makes Christianity worth considering is that it's, it presents a story that's actually big enough to live because it's a story you can't live unless you give your whole life. There's no halfway measures. There's no toe in the water. Maybe I'll swim. It's either get in or you're not. And so Jesus says, come follow me. And if you want to do that, you've got to give your whole life. I know it's scary, but in giving your life, you'll find it. Just trust me.